RPN, the Roddenberry Podcast Network. It's Shabam, sponsored in part by Google. On the last episode, the kids made a plan to leave the house. First stop, my house. And from there, they would drive to the safe zone at Vanderbilt. You mean Vandenberg? How do you so they loaded up the car with the remainder of their food and water and made a rather hasty exit through the garage door. <laughs> and a few zombies. Now, because of Elliot's questionable driving skills, the kids have run into a new problem. Whoa, what was that? The hatch flew open! Oh no, the food and water! We need to go back! They're surrounding us! We can't go back, you just gotta keep going! I'm flooring it! I'm flooring it! So now it's critical that they get to Nadine's to replenish their supplies. Oh my gosh! Which way are you going? Whoa! Look out! Whoa. I'm going the back way, there's cars all over the place! More Krasinski! Yikes! So to recap, it's been about three and a half weeks since the Knox virus exploded into LA. Officials are calling it the Knox virus. A state of emergency was declared, the quarantine zones failed, and widespread infection led to complete shutdown of city utilities like power and water. There are now thousands of infected people in the LA streets, making it impossible for the National Guard to evacuate people to the safe zones. If the kids are going to survive, they only have themselves to rely on. Okay, why are we stopped? My house is that way. I'm just thinking, all the food we packed is lying in our driveway and Ralph's is right here. You wanna go shopping? I think that's a spectacularly bad idea. We have food at my house. We don't know what's at your house. We're here now, let's get what we can. As you recall from the previous episode, food is last on the list of the survival big four. Shut up, water, fire, food. That's the sacred order, dude. You can go up to three weeks without food, but to survive indefinitely, you're going to need it. And that brings us to today's topic, food, or what scientists like to call food. Well, actually, we call it food. Food. Okay, yeah, we call it food. Sorry, my my fault. On this episode, we're going to explore our modern food system and get a little taste of how crazy it is. And to do that, we've chosen one food to lead us on that journey. The ultimate vegetable. Broccoli. Nope. Kale? Is... Kale, even a vegetable? Yes, but that's not it. Okay, watercress. Who picks watercress? I was just doubling down on the leafy greens. Nope. All right, fine. It's pizza. No. Wait, wait, wait. What? That's right. No, it's not. Officially declared a vegetable by the U.S. Congress in 2011. Tomato paste. Pizza is a vegetable. Pizza. Okay, we need to clear up that Congress didn't actually call pizza a vegetable, but rather they counted the tomato sauce on the pizza as a vegetable portion in school lunch programs. I thought tomatoes were fruits. Well, they were until 1893 when the Supreme Court ruled them to be vegetables. That is true. (sighs) I give up. Anyway, I guess we're doing pizza. Pizza, pizza. Americans eat about 3 billion pizzas each year, which equals about 350 slices per second. And you can buy pizza virtually anywhere. Restaurants, baseball games, train stations, pizzerias. (laughs) That's a restaurant. All right, and supermarkets. More than 350 million tons of frozen pizzas get sold in grocery stores and supermarkets each year. And it just so happens that the kids have stopped in front of one. Look, no Krasinski's around. That's because they're probably all inside. Here's the plan. I pull up as close to the front as possible, then I'll go in, and you guys- I'm going with you. It's safer if there's two, because one person could be a lookout. You're right, except you should stay in the car. I'll go with Ellie. What? No No, way! Nadine, you stay in the car. If there are Krasinski's in there, Owen and I... That makes no sense at all. I can run faster than both of you. For most people in the U.S. today, the supermarket is where we get our food. 
Sure, there's farmers markets and your ant grows her own green beans, but without supermarkets it would be impossible to feed the 300 million frozen pizza eating people living in the United States. Fine. Let's go. Honk if there's a problem. Won't that attract the Zinskis? Why do we keep second guessing my plans? Do we have a choice? No. Honk if there's a problem. Think of supermarkets like the giant vending machines of the food industry. It's all packaged and pretty on the shelf. You put in the money and ready to eat food comes out. The system that supplies those products only becomes apparent to us when it breaks down. Oh God. Oh. And why does it smell so bad in there? That's rank. Supermarkets keep all this food fresh and ready for us to consume by using our old friend, the electrical power grid. Finally, somebody agrees. Yes, yes, come on. Without electricity, there's no refrigeration. And without that, all of the meats, seafood, and fresh produce would just be piles of rotting material full of bacteria, mold, cockroaches, rats, and maggots all having a giant banquet. Okay, so let's dive into pizza. Pizza, pizza, pizza. Let's break it down into parts and see where all these parts come from. We'll start with what goes on top, and to keep it simple, let's stick to tomato sauce, cheese, and America's favorite topping, pepperoni. Let's start with tomato sauce, which you can get from a can, or you can make yourself out of, wait for it, tomatoes. Hello. Which everyone knows grow year round. I don't like the cold. Tomatoes are a summer fruit with a season that usually lasts from June till September. because I don't like the cold. In the United States, I think what we take for granted most is that we can get any food any time of year. We just assume, you know, that anything we like will be available in the supermarket. That's really, really a new phenomenon. That's Ken Elbala, food historian at the University of the Pacific. And he said that it wasn't that long ago that you only ate what was growing that season. So you could go for the whole winter and never see salad. You know, just because you'd never have fresh vegetables like that, it would have to be stored things, turnips and potatoes and cabbage. When you buy fresh tomatoes in the winter, they've been traveling from places where it's warm year round. One of those places is Florida, which is where most of our fresh tomatoes come from. Now, ironically, it's also the worst place to grow tomatoes. That's because Florida doesn't actually have things that tomatoes want. I like it dry. Florida's very humid. Uh, yep. What about bugs? Well, since it never gets cold enough in the winter to kill the bugs that attack tomato plants, uh, Florida farmers have to drench the plants in pesticides. Okay, is there enough to eat? Well, the soil in Florida is all sandy and gravelly, so there's no nutrients. Uh, which means they have to dump tons of fertilizer into the soil to feed the tomato plants. Well, as long as there's food and water. Feeding plants and killing bugs is how farmers grow so much food. But there's always a downside to all these pesticides and fertilizers. Pesticides are, well, you know, poison. And all that extra fertilizer pollutes the groundwater. But we do all of this because we want our tomatoes in the winter. We assume, you know, there should be tomatoes in the supermarket year-round, which would never, ever have been the case until you had long-distance shipping, until you had refrigerator trucks, until you had a whole sort of infrastructure to move food around. So how do they make it to the store? Well, since it's a long way from Florida to wherever you're eating, they have to hand-pick them when they're green and hard. When they're green, you can actually throw them against the wall without bruising them. But the drawback to picking them while they're green is that you separate the tomato from the part of the plant that tells it when to ripen and turn into its juicy red tomato glory. To compensate for this, tomato growers spray tomatoes with a plant hormone called ethylene. Ethylene. This tells the tomato to ripen after it's been picked, right before it arrives at the store. Tomatoes aren't the only plants that produce ethylene naturally when they're growing. So this trick is used for a variety of produce like bananas or apricots or peaches. But let's get back to the kids and what's left of the produce section. Let's do this fast. Looks like we're the last people to have this idea. Wow, this place is a mess. 
I've never seen so many empty shelves in the supermarket. What am I stepping in? There's gotta be something here that's still usable. For centuries, humans have been thinking of ways to preserve food so it's still usable for long periods of time, like drying or pickling or salting. But there's one innovation that Ken Albala says was game-changing. Canning goes back to the early 19th century, but the mid-19th century in England, they developed tin to keep food in. It makes the food taste terrible. It makes it discolored. Um, by the time they figure out aluminum, you know, by the early 20th century, and easier, cheaper ways to can food, that becomes the staple, you know, and again, it fits into this idea that you can put it on the shelf and whenever you need it, it you know, it won't go bad. Because of canning, freeze drying and other forms of preserving food, we're able to package a food product and have it last for months on our shelves. Now, you'd think that a can of tomatoes contains fresh tomatoes from Florida just chopped up into a can. Processed tomatoes or tomatoes grown specifically for chopping up live on the other coast in California. In 2015, these growers and factories supplied us with 96% of our canned and jarred tomato products. And how tomatoes from California make it into our pizza sauce, which you can get year-round, is a great example of how food has been turned into a product. Ah, there's our little tomato plant growing in the California sun. It's nice to just roll. It's harvested by machine, sent to a processing plant, cleaned, peeled, and mashed up. Sealed in a can, put in a box, hoist onto a truck, and shipped to your local store. At Morningstar, the largest tomato processor in California, over 5,000 tomatoes get this treatment every second. That's 630 tons every hour. And that's just one factory making one canned food. When you go to the store, you see all kinds of canned foods, corn, beets, green beans, sardines, you name it. There's a network of factories and trucks for every item on the shelf. That is our country's food supply chain. When these supply chains are cut off, like during a zombie apocalypse, the food that's left in the stores gets used up really quickly. So it's no wonder that in the supermarket where the kids are, it's been pretty much picked clean after three weeks. Is it safe to say that we took this risky detour for greeting cards and dog food? There's got to be some food or something in the back. Are you crazy? We don't know what's back there. Also, there's no light. We need food. Four mangled granola bars isn't going to cut it. How much food do we need? How far is it to Vandenberg? I think it's like three hours away. I don't know. I fell asleep on the bus ride. But did you see that entrance ramp to the 405? We might not even be able to get... Wait, what was that? What was what? Shh! Let's get back to the car. There's nothing else in here. There's got to be a stock room. Why aren't we... Oh, God, it smells worse back here. Oh, God. This was such a bad idea. You can't even see what we're stepping over, and I... Ow! Ah! Run! Give me your hand! Go! 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 By the way, remember ethylene? That chemical we mentioned that tells the tomato to go from green to red? Well, it's a hormone that tells a plant when to shed its leaves or open its flowers. It's just one of many hormones in a plant that cause chain reactions to occur, which physically change the organism. Now, your body produces hormones too. These chemicals get produced when you feel stressed or scared, for example. Unlock the car! Move over! You said I could be in the driver's seat! Move! Drive, I'm driving! Jeez! Right now, the kids are experiencing the effects of the hormone adrenaline, or epinephrine, which does things like increase your heart rate and make your muscles contract faster. But there's thousands of hormones in the human body all doing different things. When you feel hungry, for example, that's because your digestive system is releasing a chemical that signals to the brain to crave food, like pizza. And that brings us to our second topping. Formaggio is the cheese. Three and a half feet of cheese. Stuck with over three and a half feet of cheese. Cheese, 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 cheese. 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 They put the cheese in the crust? 
The U.S. dairy industry produces over 22 billion gallons of milk per year. To do that, cows basically go to work in a place called the milking parlor, where mechanical milkers suck milk directly into a huge tank. This milk is pasteurized or heated up to kill all the bacteria and sold. Or it's turned into butter, cream, and cheese like mozzarella. Mozzarella is a cheese we've adopted from Italy, but originally it was from the milk of Italian buffaloes. We say buffalo d'acqua because it's like a domesticated water buffalo. (laughs) In the U.S., we make more Italian-style cheese than any other type of cheese. And it's for, you guessed it, pizza. So pizza requires a lot of milk. In fact, we humans use so much milk for making cheese and other dairy products that we don't even let baby cows drink it. Because cow's milk is such a precious commodity and because letting calves nurse from their mothers wastes time and milk, humans have developed something called Milk Replacer. Welcome to Milk Replacers 101. Which is like baby formula for calves. It's a powder that you can buy in bulk. Weighing the powder. Mixed with water, it's got proteins and vitamins, and you can make it the same every time, or consistent. It is consistent quality milk replacers. Very consistent diet, love consistency. The calves all drink the same stuff, they grow up into cows that eat the same stuff, and they make the same milk. It's all part of making the food supply consistent because we want our favorite pizza to taste the same every time. Let's take a break and check back on the kids who still haven't eaten anything all day. So, that was fun, right guys? Oh yeah, that was totally worth it. Make a left here, it's faster. Tonic water and artichokes? You guys couldn't get anything else? Well, there was lots of stuff to choose from, but we thought tonic water and artichokes was something you liked. I'm just saying there's not enough food for all of us. Same team. Okay, it's on this next block. Oh, that's a lot of Krasinski's. Yeah, this is way better than the supermarket. We should just skip this. If we want to eat more than just artichokes, we need to find a way into my house. I personally like artichokes. We live in a world where year-round, the supermarket provides us with food from all over the country and all over the world, like artichokes from Italy. And our complex food supply chains are made to be fast and efficient so we can get a lot of food to a lot of people. And the family farms with the chickens and the cows that sell milk and eggs to the local stores is mostly a thing of the past. Now we have cow and pig farms that raise thousands of cows. Just cows, or pigs, or chickens. They're essentially meat factories. Which brings us to our last topping, pepperoni, a cured sausage made of both beef and pork that sounds Italian but was invented in America. What? Hey Mel, do they put pepperoni on pizza in Australia, or do they just like slather it with Vegemite? Vegemite is an Australian food spread made from vegetables and leftover brewer's yeast extract that many people think is disgusting. That's the most ridiculous thing in the world. You put Vegemite on ice cream on the top of pizza, you put marsupials. Come on, everybody knows that. (laughs) Yes, of course they put pepperoni on pizza in Australia. Although pepperoni is an Italian word, it has nothing to do with sausage. Pepperoni means many bell peppers. Not only is pepperoni an American invention, but so is the pizza that we know and love. Traditional pizza from Italy was totally different. Again, here's Cannabala. Pizza was a very thin little cracker, a couple of slices of buffalo mozzarella put on, not all over the place, and maybe a sprig of basil. It was small, like it could fit on a plate. And you eat it with a fork and knife, and quite often they pour olive oil on it before eating it. So that's a completely foreign idea to Americans. Pizza gets to the United States, and it becomes bigger. It's cut in huge slices. It gets all sorts of toppings go on it like pepperoni. Here's the weird irony. You go to Italy now, you can find that kind of pizza. It's, it's it, The Americans' sort of idea has transferred to, to Italy, and I've even seen pizzerias where you can buy by the slice and walk away with it in the street. That would have been unthinkable to a, an older generation. All right, back to pepperoni. 
How popular is pepperoni? Each year, Americans eat 250 million pounds of it. <laughs> Wendy's a vegetarian. <laughs> Imagine a cube of raw meat, 165 feet on each side. Its mass would completely cover the infield of a baseball diamond. And all you could see would be a wall of meat Josh. sitting there in the hot Josh. summer sun, please. smelling like decaying dumpster please. with maggots. Please, please. Please stop. Rotting meat. One of the big problems with these meat factories is that animals need to eat and drink also. And we use a lot of food and water to feed and process the animals that we eat for food. If all that food that we grew for livestock were fed to people instead, we could feed 800 million people. That's almost three whole Americas. The same thing with water. It takes about 130 gallons of water to grow a pound of potatoes. But compare that to the 1,800 gallons it takes to make a pound of beef. That includes the water for the grains, that includes the water that the animals drink, and the water that's used to process the meat. And we're not even getting into the extra energy used to take care of the animals, the methane gas produced by the animals, and blah, 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 et cetera, et cetera, et cetera. It all be a whole lot more efficient if we just ate plants. Except for one small problem, Wendy. You can't make pepperoni out of vegetables. <laughs> well, actually, there's a few meatless pepperoni products out there made out of soybeans and wheat. Growing food to feed animals that we grow to feed us uses a lot of extra resources. But people like the taste of animals, and meat also has good stuff in it, like proteins. So, is there an animal out there that doesn't waste a lot of resources, tastes good, and is still nutritious? Anyone? Crickets. Yes, actually, crickets. Oh yeah, of course. Crickets are a complete source of protein and contain two times more iron than spinach. And according to the company Exo that makes cricket bars, they only require one gallon of water per pound. And it just so happens that we have some cricket bars here to try. Can you eat this, Swindy? It's Thank you. It's a vegetarian ate a cricket? Nope. This is my point. So Josh sends me these cricket bars and he's like, we're going to eat cricket bars. And I'm like, Josh, I'm a vegetarian. And he's like, no, you're just still going to eat the cricket bars. And I'm like, no, because that's not vegetarian. And then he didn't understand. No, I understood. <laughs> I understood why he didn't want eat the cricket bars. I just ignored it. <laughs> I'm trying to think of which one is going to gross me out the least. There's a live cricket in mine. Alright, let's do it. Let's do it. There's a little mealy. It's not, it's not bad. You know, this is essentially a protein bar, Yeah. And all protein bars taste disgusting. Although, I do have like this little piece sticking up that looks like a cricket eyeball and it's kind of freaking me out. <laughs> <laughs> no, they, it, there's no way there's a whole eyeball in there. Look, okay, see, that's a cricket eyeball right there. No, it's not. It's yeah. a part of a blueberry or no, something. No, it's a cricket eyeball. Hey, I got a leg caught in my teeth. Mm, uh, do not. <laughs> do not. They turn it into flour. Here's what my son and his friends thought about it. It's awful. Nothing in it is good. It's terrible. Oh, oh. But like, not because it's crickets. Oh, why would you do this to me? Wendy, didn't your son try too? I do not want to try a cricket bar. Why don't you want to try a cricket bar? Because it will taste disgusting. Well, you don't know if it's going to taste disgusting. Well, I'm a vegetarian. Wendy, you should try the apple one. The apple one? Mm. Water. Oh, uh, you really need the water with these much things. Better. I'm going to try the banana one. Wait, hold on, I'm going to try the apple one. Do they have a cricket flavored one? Oh. oh. I think we've determined that the apple cinnamon is the winner, yeah? Yeah. Yep. Which means if you're going to make power bars out of crickets, you better add some apple and cinnamon in there so you mask that flavor. <laughs> <laughs> We're going to take a little break to check in on the kids. And when we come back, we'll find out what's way worse than eating bugs. Okay, here's the plan. We drive through them, take as many of them out as we can, then back up to the house and run inside. That's not a plan. That's ridiculous. We should drive slowly around the block. How is that a plan? The Zinskis are attracted to sound and movement, right? As we drive around the block, they'll follow us, which will draw them away from Nadine's house, like a magnet. 
how do we stop them from following us when we get back over here? We just speed up and lose them on the other street. They can't outrun the car. Then, we'll have this block to ourselves. Good thinking, Owen. Uh, those artichokes are sounding pretty good right about now. And that's saying something, because you got to be pretty desperate to want to eat artichokes. <laughs> I think artichokes get a bad rap. Well, then they should taste better. <laughs> Sometimes you can get so hungry that you're willing to eat just about anything. I have this sneaking feeling that we're about to go back in time. Yes, we're going back in time. We're going to go back, back, back. Back to 1607 in Virginia. And the English are just arriving on the shores of Jamestown with some boats. So really, the English arrived at the worst possible time and were underprepared and then completely blew it by not maintaining good relations with the native population. That's Dr. Joyce Chaplin, professor of early American history at Harvard University. And she's talking about a famous story of hunger and desperation. The English settlers didn't know it, but in 1607, there was a drought going on in Virginia, so growing food would be hard. The good news was that there's already thousands of people living in Virginia who could help. The Native American tribe called the Powhatans. And they lived in houses, and they made fire, and they wore clothes, and they got married, and they went fishing and hunting, and they also grew their own food, like squash, beans, and corn. The Powhatans had been living in the Virginia forest for a long time, so if anyone knew how to eat off the land, it was them. Now, you may have heard of the most famous Powhatan, Pocahontas, but that's not the story we're telling today. This story is about the English settlers who came to Jamestown looking for gold. The first thing they did was build a fort to protect themselves from the so-called savage Indians. And by August 1609, just two years later, most of the colonists had managed to get themselves killed, either by getting sick or fighting with the Powhatans. They were more interested in finding gold than farming, so they were forced to trade with the Powhatans for food. The settlements at Jamestown were unprepared and did not have food supplies that would have lasted them through a winter where they had not planted crops and had a harvest. And then, 300 more colonists arrived, including women and children. So now, going into the winter of 1609, they were already running low on food, they had 300 more mouths to feed, and were trapped in the fort because they were afraid of the Powhatans who they had managed to aggravate and annoy for the last two years. Like Elliot, Nadine, and Owen, they had a choice. Leave safety and take their chances finding food, or stay safe but risk running out of stuff to eat. They decided to stay, and the winter of 1609 to 1610 became known as the Starving Time. Here's how George Percy, leader of the Jamestown colonists, recalled that winter. Just a heads up, when people are actually starving, they do extreme things, so this part of the story might not be for everybody. Then, having fed upon horses and other beasts as long as they lasted, we were glad to make shift with vermin as dogs, cats, rats, and mice. They ate snakes, and even... Boots, shoes, or any other leather. And then they ran out of that. And now famine beginning to look ghastly and pale in every face, that nothing was spared to maintain life and to do those things which seem incredible, as to dig up dead corpses out of graves and to eat them. Wait, what? Archaeologists have have just discovered the remains of a woman they're calling Jane in Jamestown, where it's clear that she'd been exhumed after death. And the pattern of cuts on her skull indicate that people, survivors, had cut flesh away from her to eat. The survival cannibalism that we know of at Jamestown was by people who needed food and were willing to eat human flesh. As far as we know, they only ate it from people, in this case one person, who had already died. 
By spring, only 60 of the 400 or so colonists remained alive. Ironically, one of the many fears the colonists had about the Powhatan tribe was that they were cannibals, which they weren't. But it goes to show if you're really hungry and you're that desperate, you might do almost anything to get food. Now, let's check back with the kids. I'm going too slow. I'm going to speed up. There's too many. We got to make sure none of them are following us. They're all following us. I agree with Elliot. Wait till the middle of the block. Ah! Okay, I'm going. Whoa! No, too fast, too fast! You're not gonna make the turn! I'll make it! Car in the road! What are you doing? We're trapped. Back up, back up! Through the Zinskis? Oh, and move your head, I can't see. Oh my god, you suck at backing up. Not helping, not helping! Truck! Go right! No, no left! Is everyone okay? Yeah, I think so. Uh, guys, we gotta go. Trying, Owen. My house is right over there. Let's make a run for it. Wait, don't touch the outside of the car. What? Why? It's covered with infected blood and stuff. Ooh, good point. Okay, on one. One! Okay, so we've been talking a lot about what goes into pizza. But how do we know what's in our pizza? How do we know what's in anything that we buy at the store? Well, mm. you just pick up the box and read the label. Mm, these are awesome. What's in these? Mm, caramel, caramel milk, soy protein, isolate, thiamine, mononitrate. Knowing exactly what's in the food we're eating is a new thing. Before 1990, you didn't have to list the stuff that was in the food you were selling. In fact, that nutrition label with all the information about calories and fats and sodium didn't exist before 1993. But the most important thing on any food product these days is um, the nutrition facts label. It is the most recognized graphic in the world, according to latest uh, surveys. That's Suzanne Janod, historian at the FDA, or the Food and Drug Administration, which, among other things, regulates pizza. But FDA would regulate the tomato sauce. It would, the canning of the tomato sauce, the processes that go into the tomato sauce, um, any kind of vegetables, the cheese, the, um, the flour. And that brings us back to the last part of the pizza, the dough, which is made with flour. And usually when you think of flour, you think of soft, billowy white powder that farmers make from wheat. It's almost impossible to, you know, harvest a load of wheat without a few bugs getting in there. Which grosses me out a little less seeing that we just ate a bunch of cricket bars. But the FDA's job is not just making sure there aren't too many bugs in your pizza dough. It's much more important than that. During the 1880s, right before the FDA was created, the country was growing a lot. People were working in factories and they were living in cities. Which means food like fruit and vegetables had to be brought in from distant places. Uh, you weren't going out into your own yard and picking them, nor were you going to like a communal farmer's market to trade them. And this was also the time when new chemical preservatives were being used. And no one knew if they were safe. One of them, for example, was formaldehyde, which is used to preserve dead people. And it was being put in things like milk. There were lots of concerns about the safety of the food supply. Manufacturers also used to color food with the same chemicals used to dye clothing. The colors that they were using were aniline dyes, which are carcinogenic, and they were straight from the textile factories. Carcinogenic means it causes cancer. So by the turn of the century, right before the FDA officially got started, you were basically living in a world where packaged food, whether in cans, bottles, or boxes, was a mystery. 
You couldn't be sure the labels were telling the truth, you didn't know what exactly you were consuming, nor did you know what else was in it. As a consumer, you didn't even know how much you were getting, because if you're a manufacturer, you could cheat. So you could manufacture a bottle with thick sides. And that means in an eight ounce bottle of juice, you might be getting four ounces of juice and four ounces of glass. Let's fast forward back to the present day. So now when you buy frozen pizza or any other sort of packaged food that comes in boxes or cans or bottles, because of the FDA, you know that what it says on the outside is actually what you get on the inside. 100% juice. Starting with the net weight statement. That was required back in 1913. And that, it was that net weight statement that paved the way for what we know now and almost everybody knows as the Nutrition Facts label. So today, whether you're a farmer or a food manufacturer, you need to follow a lot of rules to make sure that what you produce is accurately described and safe to consume. Especially if you're a company that crams a bunch of protein, ground nuts, barley, vitamins, and preservatives into a chocolate-flavored paste that gets extruded into soft things that you can eat. Like the cricket bars we ate 10 minutes ago, and like the bars that the kids are eating right now. They're military ration protein bars. My dad's really into hiking. Um... They are so good. It almost makes me forget that we're now stuck at your house with a bunch of Zinskis outside, and we don't have a car. You'd rather be eating artichokes and drinking tonic water? I'd rather be on the road to safety. What about bikes? What? What about bikes? We could ride bikes to Vandenberg. <laughs> yeah, okay. Or... No, he was right. Are you guys crazy? No, think about it. Bikes are faster than a Zinski, they don't run out of gas, and we can maneuver through all of the parked cars. And they're quiet. We won't accept the Zinskis. And we're totally unprotected. If we were lucky enough to find a car that A, had keys, and B, had gas, you saw the roads. There's no way we'd make it through. There's some bikes in the garage. We could load them up with enough supplies for the next couple of days and set out tomorrow. Okay, let's wrap this up like a little protein bar. In order to feed a huge number of people, food is treated like a factory-produced product, which has advantages. Like we can make a lot of it. Five billion pizzas a year. It's always available. Pizzas anytime. It's consistent. I know that frozen pepperoni pizza will taste the same every time. It's safe. And not likely to make me sick. And perhaps most importantly, a food industry network means not everyone has to grow food. I can spend my time doing other things. Like being an ER doctor. But there are also disadvantages, like forcing tomatoes to grow where they wouldn't ordinarily grow. Yeah. Or picking them when they're unripe. So they taste bland. You know, the irony is that where we have nutritionists and our government telling us, eat more fruits and vegetables. Well, of course no one's going to eat them if they taste bad. No wonder kids don't like to eat that stuff. Doritos taste much better. There's no doubt about it. You know, and I think if we had a greater appreciation for food when it came into season, when it tasted really good, when you know the people who grew it, um, you know, a great tomato is actually better than Doritos. Since we make so much food for so many people, we really have to make sure it's safe, which means rules and regulations. But the biggest disadvantage is that we're totally dependent on this crazy network to feed us. If it breaks down for whatever reason, unless you're hoarding food, it's starving times. And for now, the kids have a little bit of food, but how long is that gonna last? What do we do? You guys get to the garage and get those bikes out. I'll pack as many supplies as I can. Were bikes the right choice? We'll find out next time on Shaban. There's only two bikes. My old bike's in the corner. The pink one with the flowers? Suck it up, Owen. Shabam is produced by CeCe Herbert. Your hosts, Mel Herbert, Josh Kurz, and Wendy Roderice, 
also created the show. Ugh, too bad the tires are flat. Pumps on the wall! Recording engineer, Mixmaster, is Bill Connor. It doesn't even have a bar in the middle. You can ride side saddle. Our voice actors are Steve Santucci, Rose Sangenberger, Chase Zawalinski, Ward Crockett, Art Kimbrough. Fine, just hurry. It's always Elliot, you do it, but do it faster. Special thanks to Ken Albella, Dr. Joyce Chaplin, Dr. Suzanne Janard. Bags, bungee cords. Let's strap them up. There's a backpack for each of you. Also featuring the musical stylings of Matt Eccles and St. Cecilia. Okay, we uh, can't go out the garage. Backyard could be clear. Lead the way. Kitchen, come on. Shabam is a production of Fuliboo Incorporated. This episode of Shabam is sponsored in part by the making and science team at Google. And why is that, Cece? Because Google loves science. Okay, you guys ready? Uh, I guess. Okay, at the end of the alley, we need to go right because... Got it, go, go! <laughs> Owen, pedal faster! Hey, Shabammers, got a dollar burning a hole in your pocket? Okay. You know what you can do about that? Well, it's hot, so I probably want to take it out. Yes, well, guess what? You can get rid of that dollar on Patreon. Is that like a half-horse, half-eagle? No, it's a way for you to support what we do every month. What about iTunes? Yeah, you can do that, too. Subscribe, review, like, easy. Also, check out our website, shabamshow.com. Sign up for the YouTube channel. But if you want to be part of Shabam and get cool stuff in return, become a Patreon. Visit us at patreon.com slash shabam and help support Shabam. So what is the half-horse, half-eagle? Go to patreon.com slash shabam. Shabam! Podcast.roddenberry.com the Roddenberry Podcast Network.